Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey everybody, this is Dr. John back with the latest episode of The Evolved Caveman. And I am really thrilled to have with me today, Dr. Gary Kaplan. And Gary, Dr. Gary, is a the founder and medical director of the Kaplan Center for Integrative Medicine. He is author of Total Recovery, a revolutionary new approach to breaking the cycle of pain and depression. He is a pioneer and leader in the field of integrative medicine and one of only 19 physicians in the country to be board certified in both family medicine and pain medicine. Dr. Kaplan is passionate about using multidisciplinary and alternative medicine strategies to address underlying chronic conditions. His forthcoming book, Why You Are Still Sick, is set to be released in June 2022. Dr. Gary, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? A complete privilege to be here, Dom, and, uh, and thank you for having me on the show. My pleasure. So tell me, tell me a little bit about your background. How, what is integrative medicine and how did you get involved in it? So I've been involved in, so it, there's two things, integrative medicine and functional medicine, all of which, okay. and what I like to think of it ultimately is all about good medicine. So I was, um, uh, I was on the board of the uh, American Holistic Medical Association many moons ago and had the privilege of learning uh, from Norm Shealy, who is one of the uh, founders of the holistic, which became integrative uh, uh and which evolved into complementary uh, uh, medical systems. Uh, and I've uh, worked with Gladys McGarry. And there's a number of giants in the field that I've had the privilege of, of learning from and, and working with. Um, one of the things that uh, Norm talked about, Norm Shealy talked about, was this integration of mind and body and really what it meant and how to go about uniting the two. And so it was always about working with conventional medicine and doing what you could do with conventional medicine, but it was also about using techniques such as acupuncture. And I had the privilege of uh, being one of the founding board members of the American Academy of Medical Acupuncture. And I ran the Medical Acupuncture Research Foundation for five years. And then uh, I uh, was on the uh, NIH consensus conference uh, that actually got acupuncture established within mainstream medicine back in 1996. Uh, we've also, over the years, I was on one of the consensus conferences at NIH that looked at a meditation and relaxation techniques for treatment of chronic pain uh, mm -hmm. and sleep disorders. And uh, more recently, I served on the advisory committee at Health and Human Services uh, for MACSF, myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome, and I was there for four years helping guide recommendations in terms of where funding should go uh, and uh, research efforts should go in order to be able to uh, get better answers uh, for these millions of people struggling with uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. And one of the, the things that has come out of all of this is I've ended up treating people with lots of diseases that nobody else believes exist. So like chronic fatigue syndrome, Okay. Like post-treatment Lyme syndrome, uh, or the last yeah. 10 years, pans, pandas, the pediatric acute uh, onset neuropsychiatric syndromes, um, maltreating post-COVID. Um, because it turns out, and these treatment-resistant depressions and chronic pain, right? Yeah. 
And so one of the other things that came in, the reason I wrote my, my first book, Total Recovery, Total Recovery was about a brand new concept that said, you know, the reason you're in pain is because the brain is inflamed. And the brain is inflamed. Originally, what we looked at, because my academy, my academy of pain medicine in 1999, 98, somewhere in there, said, you know, it's okay to go use opioids to treat chronic pain. And uh, so we were doing so in the office, and I'm going, this isn't working. My patients are getting depressed. My patients are getting yeah. uh, back and forth. And at the same time, we were looking at other things like mold toxins, and we were looking at uh, Lyme disease. And I had the, the privilege to have uh, several colleagues who were willing to sit down with me and tease this out, Dr. Jose Apud from, uh, from NIH, uh, psychiatrist. Uh, Mike Lumpkin, uh, neuroscientist over at Georgetown, and a group of us got together and said, okay, what is this? What's going on? And uh, what we found was that the early indications were that uh, there was inflammation going on in the brain. So we looked at microglia, the innate immune system in the central nervous system. And then, okay, well, what causes microglia to get upset? Well, infections cause them to get upset. Hypoxia causes them to get upset. Hypoxia. Loss of oxygen to the brain. Thank you. Okay. What so let me hypoxia? let me ask you. Let me break in there. So can hypoxia be caused by the shallow breathing uh, that's brought on by many of the uncomfortable emotions, like anxiety, for example? No, that anxiety. Or is it is it a step beyond that? The several steps beyond that. Where okay. hypoxia, the big issue of hypoxia is snoring. Okay. Oh, and uh, sleep apnea. Sleep apnea. So. One cause of hypoxia is when your wife has placed a pillow over your face because you're snoring. <laughs> I, that sounds like attempted murder. Uh, well, justifiable, perhaps, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, I didn't realize sleep apnea had that much of an impact on oxygen flow. Oh, that's, a, that's a profound impact. Normal oxygen saturation should be 94 and above. Uh -huh. I, I just looked at a patient this morning. Her oxygen saturation is dropping to 83. Is that during the night while she's during the night while she's asleep? Okay, that's not gotcha. supposed to do that. You're not supposed to go below ninety-three. Yeah. So eighty-three is a big drop. Now I have a patient who dropped to sixty-eight. That patient was falling asleep during the day, falling asleep at stoplights, falling asleep while taking uh, histories from patients. That person was me. Oh, okay. okay. Wow. 20 years ago, before all this stuff was really starting to come out, I'm sitting there going, I can't stay awake. My wife is screaming at me that I'm snoring. And I got evaluated in one of the early sleep labs. And they said, no, you look fine. And my wife is going, no, you are not fine. He's not fine. Not fine. Not closely <laughs> fine. My children were saying I wasn't fine. I wasn't fine. And I was exhausted all the time. And so I went and got another sleep study. And the new sleep study said, you have a problem that uh, you're going to die. <laughs> uh, and I was dropping my oxygen saturations into the uh, low 60s. And it was like, okay. And I will tell you, within a week of getting on a CPAP, I have, I, I've had more energy than I, I had as much energy I had when I was in my 20s. So for those of you who don't know the acronyms, the CPAP is the sleep apnea machine, right? That you right. wear at night. Right. Um, but the other thing that fascinates me about this is we know that the brain is highly sensitive to minute changes in oxygen levels in the blood. So if you're dropping down to 83 in the 60s, like that's no bueno. No bueno. 
<laughs> so, wow. and, and what, how no bueno? It causes hypertension, it causes diabetes, it causes obesity, and it'll take a good 10 years off your life. And, no, wait, wait, okay, so wait, wait, slow that down, slow that down, back that up. Right. How can this cause or lead to diabetes or obesity, for example? What's the pathway there? Your brain gets inflamed, okay? So you get hypoxic. The brain goes into a bit panic mode. Well, what is the brain? How does the brain panic? It panics by releasing hormones, right? So your adrenals go, whoa. Oh. Right? Your thyroid starts to get honky. And now the next thing that's happening is, so you've got hormonal imbalances that are going on and you're, and you're living with them all day long. And those hormonal balances are causing your blood sugar to spike and then to drop down. Uh, you're having trouble metabolizing uh, your food properly. Uh, and <clears throat> your blood pressure is spiking up and spiking down, trying to maintain all the normal. But Gary, I, I thought that we could just tan our testicles and our hormones <laughs> would be taken care of. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that was just a little, that was a little Tucker Carlson joke I, I've there. Been, I, I've been... I've, <laughs> I got to say that that shit like that makes your work and my work harder. Absolutely. Positively. Because that's quack science. If you even want to put the word science on it, that's quackery. I mean, it's just, it's bullshit. Yes. Pure unadulterated bullshit. You're absolutely correct. No research to back it up. And so let me, oh, wait, sorry. I interrupted you. God, there's so many places my mind wants to go right now. I apologize. I'm delighted. To and be then it wants to make a joke. <laughs> but, I, but I do want to make the one statement about sleep apnea because I'm a Please. bit of a vigilante on that for obvious reasons since uh, it had such an impact on my life. 5%, 5% of Americans have sleep apnea, okay? And it's not just wow. those obese people. I was 170 pounds and I'm 6'1", and I couldn't put a pound on when I was diagnosed with sleep apnea. I finally was able to add some weight on. Now I got to be careful. Uh, but... Uh, uh, once I got diagnosed and treated for sleep apnea. So, I, I have a quick question. Sorry. <laughs> what if what if you're living alone? Like if you're not in a relationship, how do you diagnose or determine that you have sleep apnea? So are you rested when you get up from sleep? Do you end up getting, you know, eight, nine, 10 hours sleep and you're never rested? Do you have problems where you uh, start to nod off during meetings? Do you have problems where you start to nod off uh, after lunch? When you've not had anything to drink, do you have problems where you start to nod off, where you've stopped at a stoplight, or uh, you're driving at night and you're having trouble? Okay. Staying? Can can some of the uh, new technology help us out with that, like the Apple Watch or Fitbit, for example? You know, a little bit. You know, cheap, simple, Epworth, E P W O R T H, Epworth scale, online, free, cheap, easy. Uh, okay. Five second score. Uh, truly, okay. it takes me less than uh, 30 seconds to go through it with a patient. Score okay. If you're scoring above nine, you need to be checked for sleep apnea. Okay, perfect. So, Thank you. Real simple and easy. So uh, paper, pencil. I'm an analog guy. So sleep apnea is one of the things we want to be looking at. So we're so one of the so let's get to the 50,000 foot view for one second. What we're talking about is when we look at these conditions of uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. And we look at these conditions of chronic non-responsive depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, even bipolar disorder. Uh, we have these problems with uh, post-treatment Lyme syndrome, these pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric syndromes. Uh, what they all have in common, and chronic pain, fibromyalgia, that kind of stuff, what they all have in common is 
you come in and you tell us that you have this problem. We either believe you or we don't. There's yeah. no blood test. There's no scam. There's no way to check this stuff, or there hasn't been until now. And so uh, all of these are diseases which have frequently been dismissed by the medical profession. Uh, one of the things we, we held an international uh, conference out of Georgetown in February, we talked about a little bit earlier before we came on air. Uh, one of the things and I want to encourage people to go look at that conference. Uh, that's available on hopehealingknowledge.com, hopehealingknowledge.com. That's at the Foundation for Total Recovery uh, website. There's a fee for access to it, but it's like 100 bucks for a full medical conference for two and a half days. And you can look at it. Okay. And, and what we wanted to do is talk about all of these things have in common inflammation in the brain. How do I know that? Because of the research. Okay, we can we can actually do the studies. We've been able to demonstrate that. So inflammation of the brain. And you know what else, by the way, has really important problems with inflammation in the brain? Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis. These are all inflammatory processes going on in the brain. Multiple sclerosis specifically because of an autoimmune process. But one thing that's very interesting in the Alzheimer's studies is you get what's called tau and beta tangles. Um, uh, in the uh, in the brains of people. If you have lots of those, do you automatically have Alzheimer's? No, you do not. You can have lots oh. of those, but if the microglia are not inflamed, you don't have Alzheimer's. Interesting. 2018 study out of Harvard, uh, beautiful study demonstrating that. Now several others uh, afterwards have demonstrated that. It's an inflammatory disease. So you can still have evidence of, but not actually develop Alzheimer's if you don't have an inflamed brain. So there's lots of things you can do to make sure your brain doesn't get inflamed. Other symptoms that your brain's inflamed, focus, concentration issues, chronic headaches, chronic fatigue. All of these things are indicative of an inflamed brain. And it does damage to, there's three parts of the nervous system. You can have damage to the brain itself, uh, where you see those initial symptoms. You can have damage to the autonomic nervous system. That's the sympathetic and the parasympathetic mm -hmm. system, fight or flight. What happens then? Well, you end up with digestive disorders, right? Problems with gas and bloating and uh, digestion and constipation because your bowels aren't working right because they need the sympathetics and the parasympathetics to be in balance. You have a problem with POTS, post-orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. That means when you go from sitting to standing, your heart rate fires through the roof. If you're a teenager, it goes up by 40. If you're an uh, adult, it goes up by at least 30. And you get lightheaded and nearly pass out. Okay, again, because there's been damage to that component of the nervous system. Or you can have damage to the peripheral nervous system where you stop feeling things. Your nerves don't work right or the motor component of it where you start to lose strength. So we can see lots of damage going on to different components of the nervous system as a result of this inflammation of the brain. The inflammation can occur either on the innate side. These are our first responders. And we talk about this in the book. Or they can occur in the acquired side. This is the uh, beta cells. This is the antibodies that get built to things. Okay. And so it turns out that a large number of people struggling with these conditions are struggling with an autoimmune disease. So they've gotten an infection. The infection has appropriately tripped off the immune system to do what it's supposed to do, fight it. But the immune system gets confused 
and then starts attacking part of your brain. And then we're off to the races. We end up okay. with a condition called autoimmune encephalopathy of infectious etiology. Basically, your brain's inflamed because your own immune system is attacking it. And then what comes out is most of these conditions. So one of the things that I want to take a look at, and we're, we're talking about doing studies on, I want to look at kids who are in psychiatric hospitals and the kids who are in the juvenile detention system. Uh. I want to know how many of these kids are sick, not crazy. Yeah. Because I see kids all the time who have been told over and over and over again by their psychiatrist that they're crazy. And they are not crazy. They don't have depression. They don't have uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, right? What they have is an inflamed brain. And the brain's inflamed because they missed the infection. And the, you don't treat the infection and you don't treat the immune damage that's been done as a result of the infection. These kids stay very sick and they move. Imagine, I saw one young lady who age 10, she develops uh, obsessive compulsive disorder where she's organizing everything and checking the light switches. And then she starts developing depressive problems and she starts cutting behavior as she's getting older and she's going through all these psychiatric treatments. And then she ends up hospitalized for suicidal uh, depression. Okay. And again, she's still not responding. And they finally uh, brought her to see me. She's now 16 years old. Can you imagine the amount of damage that the profession has done to this poor child telling her she's crazy all these years? Yeah. Self-esteem of taking a 15-year-old girl and putting her in a psychiatric hospital. And they missed Lyme disease on her. She had Lyme disease. And an autoimmune disease is a result of the Lyme. She's been sick all this time. They've missed the diagnosis. Mm. They have not been treating her properly, and they were condemning her to a life of being crazy. Crazy, yeah. And she's not. She's a perfectly lovely and otherwise healthy young woman who's suffering with Lyme disease and suffering uh, with autoimmune component because of the Lyme disease. I'm willing to bet my conservative estimates looking at the literature is there's at least 25% of these kids out there that are being mistreated uh, for psychiatric problems when, in fact, they have uh, an infectious problem that's been missed in an autoimmune process. Others suggest, as you look at the literature, it may be as high as 40%. Wow. We got to fix this. And then yeah. in adults, we see it not a, a similar process. It's not quite as dramatic as the kids, but they'll be more in pain. They'll have more chronic fatigue. Uh, they'll have, but they'll be disabled. Mm -hmm. Again, we're leaving them disabled time. Well, you know, it's kind of in your head. Well, yes, it is in your head. It just happens. <laughs> so, wow, man. Yeah. That's a lot of information right there. And I, so it's hitting me how profound and widespread this, this possibly is. Yeah, no, this probably is. There's there's good evidence in the literature that's talking at least. So if we're out of this 20 million people, and I, the 20 million comes for how many people are suffering with all these conditions. Okay. Out of this 20 million people, um, if we're talking 25%, which is the low end estimate, that's a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> and we can change their lives. We can give them their lives back by getting better at our diagnostics. And so the book, the reason I wrote the book, Why You're Still Sick, is I wanted to not just outline this concept, uh, but 
I wanted to put a lot of tools in people's hands of how they can recover, what they can do for themselves, because there's only one of me. And we treat mm -hmm. people literally from all over the world, uh, but there's still only one of me. And I've got a colleague here and, and a wonderful team, spectacular team, but I need to get this information out into people's hands so that they can help themselves, so that they can help educate their physicians, so that they can recover. That's what we want to have happen. Well, so let's turn to the um, the recovery side. So let's say you have brain inflammation, because I think it's probably more widespread than even what you're saying in the sense that there could it's a matter of degree, right? So how much inflammation is going on in the brain and due to any number of causes, but how do we reduce that inflammation? How do we get rid of the brain fog? Well, again, you got to figure out what the cause is, but at the very basics, it's what everybody's been preaching forever. One of the best anti-inflammatories for the central nervous system of the brain is exercise. Proper sleep, absolutely crucial. You need to be getting seven to eight hours a night. And if you're a teenager, you need to be getting nine and a half. So proper sleep is absolutely essential. And let's pause for a second about sleep so that they understand why sleep is essential. Sleep isn't a thing, awake, asleep. Sleep is stages, two, three, four, and round. Okay? If I put you in a sleep lab, and every time you go into stage three, four sleep, defined by the EEG pattern, I wake you up. What's going to happen at the end of a week? You will be in chronic pain. Generalized <laughs> pain. All right? So why is stage three, four sleep so important? Well, it turns out that the brain doesn't have a lot of the brain doesn't have any lymphatic system in it. Lymphatic system is the drainage ditches that remove all of the cellular waste uh, and allow us to process them and get rid of them, okay? Brain doesn't have that. But what the brain does have is it has a glymphatic system. So there are specialized cells that convert into these drainage ditches. And we've only known about this for about three years now. And the glymphatic system is most active during stage three, four sleep. The brain is the most metabolically active organism in the body. So it produces lots of waste products. It actually swells during the day. It gets heavier because it retains all that fluid. When you sleep, you actually detoxify your brain. And so using getting good quality sleep is absolutely essential in order for you to have good health and to have a good healthy immune system because that then quiets down all the endocrine system that we've got communication between the brain and the gut. So the next thing is you got to eat right and you got to be careful about what you're eating because most of our food has been poisoned. Uh, pesticides, herbicides, uh, it's unbelievable how severely we've soiled our nest. Uh, I just saw a young lady uh, the other day, 14 years old. Uh, one of, she's got chronic fatigue. She's got depressive dis disorder. She's had cutting issues. Her problem, a uh, couple of things, but one of the things was she has mercury toxicity. Now, how did she end up with mercury toxicity? She eats a tuna fish sandwich every single day. She loves tuna fish. The FDA tells us that if you're pregnant, you shouldn't have more than two cans of tuna fish a week because of the amount of mercury in it. Well, what about the rest of us? Mercury is a very bad thing for your brain. Mm -hmm. And your immune system, for that matter. Yeah, I remember, well, and to this point, I remember reading a study, this was probably 20 years ago, where they tested the blood in the umbilical cord of a newborn baby 
over many babies. And they found on average more than 200 man-made chemicals in that blood before we're even born. Yep. Which is mind-boggling. Yep. No, it's terrifying what's going on. We have celiac disease, okay? Celiac disease is where you have an autoimmune response to gluten, wheat, Mm -hmm. right? Very bad thing, can do a lot of damage. And also another thing, this brain inflammation business, a number of years ago, I had a kid brought to me, suicidal, depressed. Um, and by the way, everybody's a kid who's younger than my oldest daughter, who's 38. So I'm oh, yeah, yeah. increasingly I'm a pediatrician. I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> so <laughs> so, uh, so they bring this kid in to see me, and nothing has been working for him. He tried to hang himself. It was an absolute disaster. So I worked him up for inflammation of the brain. Well, I'm go through my list of things that could be part of the problems. And one of them is looking for celiac disease because about 5% of people with celiac disease will present only with neurologic symptoms, no gastrointestinal. Most people with celiac disease have diarrhea or bloating, but uh, 5% will present just with neurologic symptoms, either uh, balance problems or depression. Okay. So look it up. He's got full-blown celiac. No question, no debate. He has full-blown celiac. We take him off all gluten products. We do some other things to clean up his gut. Within a year's time, no antidepressants, no depression. He's back 100%. I have, he's been a patient of mine for years and continues to thrive and do well, as long as we keep him off gluten. Yeah. So, but only 1% of the population is celiac disease. And yet we have all these people who are sensitive to gluten. And indeed, the answer is somewhere between 6 to 18%. Uh, the studies indicate people have true gluten sensitivity. Why? I think the problem is glyphosates. That is the herbicide that we use on wheat as a drying agent. Because glyphosate, which we pour all over the place in order to increase crop yield, glyphosates uh, get into the plants and stay in the plants. So they end up in your Cheerios. They don't get processed out. Now... Uh, it's, I don't know if this is the same thing. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a PhD in food science, and she was saying that the industry had systematically monkeyed with the genetic code of the wheat in an effort to get higher yielding crops. And because of that, they took the piece out that allows us to process the gluten in the wheat. And now they're desperately behind the scenes trying to put it back in now that they've screwed it up. That is unquestionably a piece of the problem. The, the genetically modified uh, seeds, unquestionably, that's a piece of the problem. But the, the, what they really were aiming for in modifying them genetically was to make them resistant to the herbicides, which then increased crop yield by getting rid of all the uh, weeds that were around. So they can And it's amazing. Them. If you don't want to eat anything ever again in your life, talk to a PhD in food science. Absolutely. Or go to Europe. Yes, there's, well, there's very few don't preservatives. Allow GMOs, yeah. and they don't allow for the glyphosates. And I have patients who cannot tolerate gluten here, my wife being one of them. Yep. In France, yeah. she can eat baguettes, she can eat her croissant. So it's damage we've done to ourselves. Now, all of these things become extremely important because I mean, meditation would be the fourth leg on that chair, by the way. Mm-hmm. So meditation, uh, I think, is, is crucial. It's also demonstrated to be anti-inflammatory in the central nervous system. And again, this isn't about my opinion. This is the research that showed right. that this is, in fact... Well, and there, there's so much... There's about 70 years of research now on the benefits of meditation. Absolutely. 
and and the benefits are as long as my arm. And you know, way back in the nineties. Uh, when I was on that consensus conference at NIH, there was enough data at that point that said, oh, yeah, we should be using relaxation techniques and meditation techniques on a regular basis for treatment of chronic pain uh, and sleep disorders. So lots and lots of years of research on this stuff. Good, solid yeah. data. So that's kind of the legs where you start. But then we have to look at how you've been poisoned, if you will, in your environment, because we know that those poisons, mold toxins, where do you get mold toxins from? Well, water damaged buildings, for one. Uh, the If you've had water in the building, what happens is uh, cellulose is what mold eats. Water is what they need to grow, and off they go. Then they secrete toxins. Well, about 20% of people don't have the enzymes necessary to get rid of the toxins, and they accumulate in you, the end result of which is you end up poisoned. So you have problems with nervous system disorders. You have problems with the immunologic disorders. Things don't work right. And uh, it can be so crazy where you've got a husband and wife, which I've had on a number of occasions, where the husband is sick as a dog living in the house and the wife is completely fine, or vice versa. And the issue is that one has all the genes necessary to process mm -hmm. the mold toxins in the house and the other one doesn't. So you have to start looking at disease a little bit differently than we were. You start with genetics, and we're learning about those. We've got a lot of information coming down the pike, as well, but we're not all the way there yet. We're only part of mm -hmm. okay? Citing celiac again, 30% of the population has the genes that predispose them to developing celiac disease. Only about 3% will express. So only 3% will actually develop celiac disease. So just because you got the genes don't mean you're absolutely going to get the disease. Far from it. So... Genes is certainly a piece of this, and we're getting better at this. More data is coming out every day to teach us how to help people see what they're at risk for and might develop. But the other big factor is epigenetics. So epigenetics is what's on top of and thus causes the genes to turn off or turn off. Yeah, so now you're getting into the telomeres. Telomeres, exactly correct. They're also about aging processing and how well the genes are holding up as you're going through this. So all of these are environmental factors. What's an environmental factor? Well, all the foods we were just talking about and the pesticides, the toxins uh, that are stress. in Stress. Stress. Now, stress, we also talked about at this conference. Stress specifically, we talked about early childhood events, adverse events of childhood, horrible description. Mm, the ACEs? Yes. Yeah. So what's happening is th these kids who have been subjected to uh, child abuse, neglect, poverty. they are all set up, poverty, they are all set up for getting sick. How sick? Autoimmune diseases, cardiac disease, heart disease, uh, problems with obesity, problems with diabetes, all of them dramatically increase in kids who have had these horrible childhoods. And so that's an extremely important factor that we have to work with because you can actually fix that stuff. You have to do trauma therapy with these guys, but you can fix that stuff as part of the recovery process. So we cast a pretty big net when we're working with people. We're looking at their diets. We're looking at uh, environmental factors that they've been exposed to. We're looking at, uh, and that includes early childhood traumas or ongoing traumas now in life and the stresses that happen with them. And so we take a pretty comprehensive history, and my book walks you through where you got to go looking for all this stuff, because 
when I start with a patient, the first thing I say to them, okay, when was the last time you were in excellent health? And the very first thing everybody does is lies to me. I was in excellent health until five years ago. Okay, and we take the history for what would happen five years ago. Ever have any, uh, then I start going through systems. Ever have any headaches? Oh yeah, I've had migraines since I was 13. I'm now talking to a 27 year old. Yeah. So maybe not excellent health. Uh, And do you have a history of lots of strep throats and uh, needing tubes in your ears when you're younger? Oh yeah, I had like a dozen strep throats a year and they had to put tubes in. I'm going, okay. Uh, Any issues with anxiety? I've had a lot of anxiety since childhood, but it really wasn't a problem until I got to college. You see the setup as it's building, Mm -hmm. you're watching things because we have a phenomenal amount of resilience in us when we're younger, but it starts to wear on us. And we watch these things get progressively worse as people age. So we want to find people before they tip over where the infection has in fact now caused the immune system to start attacking them. And the immune system has been weakened because of all these other environmental factors. So you really, genetics, epigenetics, looking for infections that may have created the current problem, and then looking at the immune system and seeing how that's functioning at this time. Post-COVID. Post-COVID is a classic example of where a bug breaks the immune system. And we think that uh, one of the ways, and there's controversy on this, but one of the evidence, I've been doing a lot of work with Ruth Patterson, uh, uh, one of the evidence is that uh, the one of the types of white cells, non-classical monocytes, has been damaged by the uh, S protein, uh, the COVID, that spike protein, and it's done two things to it. One is it puts it into a hyperinflammatory mode, so it's kicking out all these inflammatory factors called cytokines. And second is it stops the cell from dying. Monocytes should live about five days, but if that automatic death cycle is interrupted because of damage that the immune system or that the virus has done to the butt, to the immune system, then it, a zombie cell that just keeps pushing, pushing out all of these uh, inflammatory factors called cytokines. We can identify those cytokines, we can treat those cytokines, and we can get people to recover. So that also, this whole business of cytokines is going to be the next major breakthrough um, in diagnostics. And so we're using that now in the clinic, looking at not just post-COVID, but we're looking at uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, we're looking at chronic pain syndromes, we're looking at post-treatment Lyme syndrome, and we're looking at these uh, the pediatric uh, autoimmune neuropsychiatric kids. Are there other ways that we can look at and fix the immune system in order to be able to help them fully recover? Because that's what we want. Well, wow, it's fantastic. My my mind is spinning. So one of the things that I wanted to run by you is. I have a acupuncturist who was getting a finishing up a PhD in acupuncture and was doing research on long COVID and acupuncture. Well, her findings indicated that acupuncture was one of the best, if not the best treatment for many of the symptoms for long COVID. Do you, can well, you speak to, to that I, at all? We certainly use acupuncture. We certainly find it uh, very effective for virtually all of these conditions, but uh, not curative for most. So uh, I'd be very interested in seeing what she's doing and uh, okay. what her study is. I'd love to take a look at it. Yeah, if I can, if I can get it, I'll, I'll pass it along. But do me a favor, explain to the audience mm-hmm. 
why acupuncture works. What is it that needles are actually doing? Because that's that's an interesting one to me. I want to tell you a quick story and then to answer that question. I wrote the original acupuncture legislation in the state of Virginia. Okay. So um, I am standing before the Virginia Senate, which is a august, very Southern body. And I've got a legislator standing up there in a formal hearing says to me, Will, doctor, in this acupuncture, just another form of communism. <laughs> and, and how did you respond? Took a breath and then said, uh, well, sir, actually, if we look at the science. <laughs> they do it in China, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got to believe that we've managed to do billions of Chinese and other people around the world for over 5,000 years where there might be something to it. Mm-hmm. And I fall in the there is absolutely something to it category. So the research on acupuncture is actually pretty strong. We know that it has impact on the immune system and can help restore the immune system to normal. We know that it has uh, impact on the brain and the nervous system. We know that it can help. It's extremely useful for a whole variety of painful conditions. And one of the reasons it does that is it centrally it reprograms the brain to stop that piece of information. It has a long, complicated explanation for that. But uh, but basically, and by the way, I, I give a lecture on acupuncture at Georgetown uh, as part of our training program. So uh, we're teaching our medical students and we're teaching our next generation of docs that this is A, real, and B, here's the science to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so endorphins and dynorphins and serotonin, there's good data on all of this stuff and how this is impacting this. Very interesting study looking at true acupuncture, uh, that is real acupuncture versus placebo. And this is always a very tricky area. Yeah, it is. But because the mind is powerful and placebo is powerful. Absolutely. And there is a placebo effect that you've got to over. I mean, you have to prove that the methodology is more effective than the placebo. And we don't always succeed in doing that with procedures, mm-hmm. right? not just acupuncture, arthroscopic yep. surgery of the knee. Yep. Turns out doing arthroscopic surgery of the knee is no better than placebo. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, the acupuncture, there's one great study looking at fibromyalgia where um, they found that the endorphin levels in the cerebral spinal fluid of people with fibro is actually higher than it is in normal people. Now, that's wait, wait, wait. So, say that, Sorry, say that again slowly. So the okay. endorphin level okay. in the cerebrospinal fluid is higher? Yes, than in normal people. So people okay. in chronic pain, their endorphin levels are actually higher in the cerebral spinal fluid, okay? Now, the endorphins are the feel-good uh, neurotransmitters, okay? They're the Seems ones- Seems anti-intuitive. Yeah. So why is that? Well, it turns out that the receptors, so cells need some way to- read a signal. Those are called receptors. They're the ear of the cell. Can you hear the pitch? Right? So if they can't, if they're damaged and they can't receive the endorphin sound properly, then you need to kind of front load it, trying to get it to pay attention. So what happens? We do acupuncture and it turns out that if you do placebo acupuncture, you get about as much pain relief as you do with real acupuncture. Now that's fascinating. Now this is, and you get 70% improvement over not doing anything to people. So hmm. 
the placebo and the real acupuncture are somehow getting you a similar result. And that similar result, just to clarify, is 70% improvement. Yes. On average. Wow. Yes. That's, it speaks now, to both the power of acupuncture and the power of the mind. So, but there's a different mechanism. So what's happening is when you do the placebo acupuncture, the endorphin levels go even higher. So the body's producing more and more and more of them. Okay. Load on the equation and you're, and you're really pushing it. That's how that effect occurs. If you do the true acupuncture, you're actually seeing repair of the receptors, that little ear in order to hear. So you're seeing a more fundamental healing process going on uh, in the body as a result of doing the acupuncture. So acupuncture absolutely works. Acupuncture has got good science behind it. Uh, and acupuncture, I predicted many, many years ago that acupuncture was going to teach us about aspects of the physiology, human physiology, we did not understand. Because if it works and we didn't understand how it works, then there's something on physiology we don't understand. And indeed, that's been the case. And so we've learned a lot in the process of doing acupuncture and acupuncture research, such as this study on uh, fibromyalgia, and that the damage is to the receptors, and that it's possible to repair those receptors, the pathways we can do that. Right? So acupuncture, aside from being very cool, uh, works. And it works not by magic. It works by physiology, uh, and there's good science to show it. Yeah, and I've I've used acupuncture several times, and I can say that I wouldn't let people put needles in my body if there wasn't good research behind it. That's just my that's my framework, my lens, and I appreciate that about you that everything's so research based. And by the way, just prior to coming on this show, I had the acupuncturist in our office work on me. So, and I hate needles. I'm a complete. I do too. <laughs> Needle phobic. <laughs> but Rebecca's got a real gentle touch, and yeah. there is no question. But it's it's an interesting practice too to sit there on the table with the needles in you and mindfully breathe into it and Absolutely. use it as a form of meditation. Absolutely, positively, these things have synergistic effects, uh, and you want to listen. If the body did, what people who have AIDS die from are things that we can treat, okay? But if the body doesn't have its own healing capacity in place, and that's the problem with AIDS is it destroys the immune system, then we can't help it. There are just limits. So what you want to do is everything you possibly can do to help the body heal itself. You want to get your body as fine-tuned as possible so that it's capable of healing. Everything you can do, put in that's favor. And so acupuncture, meditation, sleep, exercise, and then we're necessary and for support. There are various medications that we need to use. Um, there are injection techniques that we can use, uh, prolotherapy for joint regeneration. I also just had that done on my thumbs. Um, so there's lots of things we can do to keep the body in good shape and good health and thus keep it from getting sick. You know, the thing that you have to keep in mind is if I take a flu bug and I throw it in a room with 10 people, not everybody's going to get flu. Two of the people in that room may actually die, get a very severe case and die. Three of the people in that room may get very severe flu and be bedridden for a week or two, but they'll be fine. A couple of people in the room may get a very mild case of it, and a couple of people in that room may not get anything whatsoever. 
I want to be that couple of people in the room. Conventional medicine, unfortunately, has spent all their time focusing on keeping the people at the other end alive. I want to focus on why is it those people are healthy and how can I get from there? How can I get everybody else to that point so that they're in spectacular health? And so one of the other things we do work with is longevity, because what we've learned from all of our really sick people is how to keep the rest of us really healthy so that we have a long time, healthy, vital, not just live a long time, but live so vitally. And you got to clean up your basement in order for that to happen. The example is, classic example, that um, condo in Florida that collapsed, Mm -hmm. right? You spend a million dollars building this gorgeous apartment in the upper floors of the the building, right? Looks spectacular. Everything on the surface is gorgeous. The basement's rotted out. Your entire thing collapses. You can't do that. You got to pay attention to the basement as well as everything else above it. And the basement in us is, how are we eating? How's our gut? Does our gut digest things properly? And what does gut health mean? And so that gets into the functional medicine component where we're looking at gut health. We're looking at hormone balances. And so we're trying to understand at a finer level what you're metabolizing, what you're not metabolizing, uh, what's going on in your digestive tract, not just what the anatomy looks like, which is important, which is what we do colonoscopes for, but we also want to know does it work? Do you, does that barrier between the gut and the blood, which has got all kinds of immune cells in it, about 75% of our immune system, is that healthy? And the way that's healthy is that the gut microbiome is healthy. And so if the gut microbiome isn't healthy, meaning, and that's made up of all kinds of bacteria, 95% of it is bacterial DNA uh, and RNA, uh, viral particles and uh, molds and parasites, all of that influences the health of the gut wall. And all of that uh, then determines whether or not that gut wall is doing its proper filtration job of making sure that the nutrients we want are coming in and not the stuff we don't want. Because when the gut gets inflamed, large molecules move into the bloodstream. The body does not like large molecules. It builds an antibody response to it. Now you've got a bunch of food allergies that you did not have previously. Let me ask you this. How much do we know about the microbiome in terms of, my understanding is that when we take a a series of uh, antibiotics that it wipes out the microbiome and then we've got to rebuild it again, kind of from scratch. I don't know if it's that drastic, but how how much do we know in terms of how to rebuild the microbiome and what individuals need to create the best microbiome for them? So the the first answer to that is not enough. That's my understanding. My my understanding right now is that the probiotic with the most strains of bacteria, you know, 7, 10, 15 billion is the best one. But that's about, that's all I know. And if you're taking antibiotics, we also want to make sure you're taking Saccharomyces boulari. Saccharomyces boulari is a non-pathogenic yeast, uh, which is a type of probiotic, and it... um, protects the gut. It's been shown in multiple studies protecting gut when you're taking antibiotics and developing clostridial overgrowth and developing clostridia difficile, which is a pretty severe infection of the gut if that were to okay. happen. So, so what we know is we have to protect the gut. So when you're treating Lyme in particular, and we need to use lots of antibiotics in treating Lyme. 
we need to give probiotics. We need to do things to prevent yeast overgrowth. We need to. Wait, wait. So can I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Can you take probiotics when you're taking the antibiotics? My understanding is that they kind of, the antibiotics would cancel out the probiotics. You have to take them apart from the antibiotics and it's just a matter of streaming. Keep them coming. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so yes, they can be effective and in fact are important as part of this because you're absolutely correct. Once you take antibiotics, you can wipe out the gut microbiome, not wipe it out, but you'll certainly modify it dramatically for upwards of a year for it to fully recover. It will recover, but it takes a long time. So we've got to be careful about what foods and what diets we put people on while we're uh, treating them with the antibiotics. We've got to make sure that we've got to be attentive this business of here, take this, you're fixed is over. We've got to be attentive to the balance of what goes on. All right. And so it's important. I don't put anybody on an antibiotic without making sure they're on probiotics and Saccharomyces boulardii. period. I don't put anybody long-term on an antibiotic without making sure I'm preventing yeast overgrowth in the gut. And I'm also keeping an eye on the gut as we move along. I want to make sure doing tests such as organic acid tests and uh, GIFX. There's a number of these tests, by the way. I've outlined all this stuff in the book so that you know what labs we're using. And uh, a lot of these things you can order on your own. Uh, and it'll begin to give you some understanding about what's going on. And you can find a functional medicine doc uh, that can awesome. have a natural path. But I want to put as much tools in your hands as possible so that you can take charge of your health. And this book is a self-help book. This book is... Sounds- Sounds like you're democratizing medicine. That would be the objective. <laughs> um, so one more question quickly, and then uh, I think we have to wrap up, unfortunately. But what about, what are your thoughts on chelation therapy? And, and maybe explain it for the listeners. So chelation uh, it comes from the Greek claw. And what it does is about removing heavy metals in particular uh, from the body. And uh, certainly if you're, if you're doing, uh, if you lead intoxication, uh, I think chelation is important. Mercury tox- intoxication. A lot of times just stopping eating the mercury will solve that problem uh, and it'll clean itself out. But uh, looking for heavy metals in people and chelatium, I think, is beneficial. The challenge. The studies are not anywhere near as strong as we want them to be. So the okay. studies looking at uh, chelation for lead, chelation of calcium in order to reduce the plaques uh, for arteriosclerotic disease they're weak studies, unfortunately. There are studies out there. It should have been a fairly easy study to do, and it's just not panned out for us. So I think there's controversy about it. I think it's important to keep an open mind about it, but I think it does have a place. Okay. I was just curious what the research was, so thank you for sharing that with me. So let me ask you this. I, you covered a tremendous amount of ground, and I am most appreciative. Was, is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have or anything that you want to share that you haven't so far? I, I want to emphasize that for all of these people who are out there suffering, don't, don't stop looking. There are better answers. We don't have all of them by any stretch of the imagination. But simple things, if you're depressed, if you're having trouble with chronic fatigue, check your vitamin D levels. Check your MTHFR, which is a gene that will help tell you whether or not you can take folic acid and make it into methylfolate. These are basic lab tests that should be done on everybody. Uh, 
so there's lots that can be done to take your take charge of your own health. And you also shouldn't hesitate. If your doctor's not listening to you, fire them. Just you, your doctor needs to pay attention to you. And if they're dismissing you, fire them. I, I am very discouraged with I'm seeing the way we're training physicians to respond to insurance companies and not respond to patients. And it takes time to do this stuff. You deserve to be listened to. Uh, take charge of your health. And uh, there are answers out there for you. If not today, there are more coming tomorrow. We're getting better at this stuff all the time. So remain optimistic because we will have better answers for you tomorrow if we don't already have those answers for you today. Great advice. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that doctors need a degree of intellectual humility, the, the awareness that you don't know everything out there. Um, I think we all need some intellectual humility. So <laughs> for what it's worth. Um, all right. So again, the book, it will be due out in June. June 14th is the release date for the book. You can pre-order it on, uh, on the, uh, my website, Kaplan Clinic, K-A-P-L-E-N clinic.com. Uh, so you can pre-order the book, get the first chapter of the book. Um, so you can see what the book's going to be about. Uh, you can, the book will be available for pre-order starting on, I think, the first of the month uh, in May. Uh, so uh, at Amazon. And uh, I hope it does a lot of good for a lot of people. That's what we're here for. Can, too. We, can we help people recover and get their lives back? Well, Gary, thank you so much for all your hard work, for your years of hard work. And thank you for spending the time with me today. I greatly enjoyed it. A complete privilege to be here, John. I really, I appreciate the work you're doing because you're also getting the word out and you're, help, you're empowering people to really return to optimal health and live long lives. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> All right. And that is it for this episode of The Evolved Caveman. If you like this episode, please remember to rate, review, and share it. If you didn't like it, you don't have to do a damn thing. Thank you very much. Talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 